I'll ask you a very simple question. And as one of my late cousins, Brother Winfrey Clark, used to say, you can simply shake or nod. You don't have to answer out loud. But the question is, do you worry? Well, I knew that you did. I know that you do. And I have come to know that in this life, we are taught at least as we come up by the world and even by Christian people, that worry is simply a part of our lives. But do you know that I've thought about worry in my life at least and thought that perhaps it be just a weakness? And I've come to know that's not true at all. Much more than worry is a weakness, it is a wickedness. I know that because on three occasions in our text today, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Jesus tells us, take no thought. Now the Greek word there found translated for thought is a word that literally means to divide. And in our understanding, it has to do with something that is divided that therefore causes us anxiety. We have many words in the English language that we might use sometimes in place of the word worry. One of them is anxiety. Another you might think about might be stress or apprehensiveness. And I suppose all of these words could apply to this text. But worry is a wickedness. And Jesus says, if you want to read it with me to begin with, in verse 25, he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, for what you shall eat, for what you shall drink, or yet for your body, for what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap. Nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for the raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed as one of these. Wherefore, if God should clothe the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now did you see it? They're located in the verse 25. Also in verse 31 and in verse 34, Jesus says we are to take no thought. That is to say we are not to have any anxious worries. So I want to talk to you today about an anxiety we must avoid. 
Because the three things we'll notice from the text begin with the idea, which is this, and that is that we ought to be recognizing the cause, or the cause is, at least, of worry. What causes you to worry? Well, I suppose we could go down through the litany of things that we might list in our lives that cause us to worry. Illness causes us sometimes to worry. The lack of our health on the other side of that will therefore cause us to worry. Oftentimes, men and women are worried about their jobs. They're worried about their careers. They're worried about the sustainability of the economy. They're worried about all these things. And we can go on and on naming those things. But all of them really categorize themselves into four areas, which Jesus speaks of right here. You notice the very first one there. You go back and read verse 25 again. He says, Unto us, therefore I say unto you, take no thought. What shall ye eat? Or what ye shall drink? You know, Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink. Jesus said we ought not have an anxious anxiety over those things. Now, is that to say that we ought to just go through our lives and say, well, God, you know, you're going to provide for me, so I'll just sit back on my haunches. I'll find my place in an easy chair somewhere, and you can provide. Because the following scriptures go ahead on to tell us that he provides for the fowls of the air. And the word fowls there in the King James translations might be misunderstood today just because of the change of the language. Because fowls to us might be a pet in the house. And we might hand that bird in the cage some bird seed. Or it might be a chicken out in the yard. And we might toss that chicken there some chicken feed or such. But the fowls literally means a wild bird. And the wild birds are not fed by men. No, they're fed only by God. As a matter of fact, a man who would not take any thought from that perspective, as in he would not worry about tomorrow from the point of view that he would go out and work and that he would labor, why he would be spoken against in the Bible. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, you'll notice that Paul said, If a man would not work, neither should he eat. We also find taught that we who would sow sparingly would also reap sparingly. We read a moment ago. We also find Paul speaking to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, and also in verse 7 when he tells us, Therefore, that he which sowing sparingly shall also reap sparingly. So certainly we've got to sow, certainly we've got to do something to reap. So therefore, what does Jesus mean? Well, the idea again comes forth from the Word. Take no thought. That is to take no anxious thought concerning our food. And men and women have that as a worry. Now, isn't it the case that many men and women on this earth and even in the country in which we live, that they are hungry? That they are considering where their next meal will come from? You say, well, yes, that's got to be the case. So are you saying that those people, therefore, are sinning? No. The context goes back to verse 24. I may have mentioned last week I had great difficulty in breaking the context here because you have to consider it. You go back to verse 24, he says, And no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve both God and mammon. Now that has to do primarily with our worship. But even the scriptures before that, back up to verse 19, for instance, Lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and dust does corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust doth not corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. The whole of the context continues to tie here, because the idea is this. We need not be anxiously worrying about what we're going to lay up in our storehouses. It's not a matter of considering one meal nearly as much as it is a matter of the way we live most of our society at least wants to live or attempts to live today where we just pile it up and pile it up and pile it up and pile it up. 
And the idea there comes down to the idea of that two masters because when we spend all of our days piling up food or at least piling up the monies to purchase the food with, what happens? Then the majority of our day that ought to be spent considering God for who He is, worshiping Him for who He is, giving Him the honor and the glory that He deserves is oftentimes set aside. So Jesus says what? Don't worry about food. Don't let food be the first thing in your life. But not only food, you go a little bit farther than this, he talks about fashion. Because you go back and read the same verse, he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for what is your life, for what you shall eat, for what you shall drink. Watch this now. Nor for your body, for what you shall put on. Is not life, now if you want to underline a word, the word life would be important, we'll mention it in a moment. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? The word life here translates from a Greek word which means breath. And it literally has to do with the soul. And so all that Jesus is saying in that is that we ought to take measure of the soul, the spirit, and put it up beside, for instance, in this case, the body, which is more important. Is it more important that my body be salvaged, that my body be taken care of, that my body be obtained? Or is it more important, therefore, that my soul be maintained? Again, the previous context will prove the soul is more important. But you go a little bit farther than this, he illustrates the purpose when he goes on and says, you watch it in verse 28, and why take your forethought for raiment? Why are you worried about your raiment? He says, consider the lilies of the field of how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Are they concerned about clothing themselves? No. No, they're not concerned about clothing themselves at all. And the illustration goes even farther when he says in verse 29, and I say unto you that even Solomon, watch it, in all of his glory. Now, he was the most glorified, and he was the most uppity-up, if you want to call him that, wealthiest king who ever lived, and I'm sure his dress would have shown it. Even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed as one of these. These what? You can draw hair back to the lilies. In Jesus' day, there was perhaps in most places upon the hilltops, and you have to go back and do your history and find the most likely time of the year and such to compare these things. But most likely, there was a purple lily that grew along the sides of the rolling hills there around Israel and Palestine. And most likely, Jesus, the master teacher that he was, could point and use that object lesson and say, you see these flowers, the ones that are so coveted. It was even the case that a Jew in that day loved those flowers so much, they weren't even allowed. We, today, we pick our most beautiful flowers and bring them in the house. They had to leave them in the fields because God had clothed them. Well, he says Solomon had nothing like that. Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed as one of these. You go forward into verse 30, another illustration of the same thing. It says, Wherefore, if God should clothe, watch it, he clothes the grass of the field, which is today and is tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? What do you mean by that, Jesus? Well, in that day, they used the grasses. The women folk used the grasses to start the fires in the oven so they could bake bread, so they could survive, so they could live, so they could eat. Jesus said, now, if God will clothe a lily like this, or if He will cause the grasses of the field to grow, cause them to develop, don't you think, wouldn't it be common sense, I would say, that God would likewise provide for you and I? But not only do we worry oftentimes about food, we sometimes worry about fashion. We worry about fitness. 
And I don't know that there's anything in this country we worry more with these days. At least we're encouraged to worry more with in our days than fitness. Look back to verse 27. He asked a rhetorical question, really, if you want to see it that way. He says, for which of you taking thought? Now, this is only by thought. This is the idea of anxious care or concern. Which of you, by anxious care, concern, or worry, can add one cubit unto his stature? Now, a cubit in that day was approximately 18 inches. Just the tip of a finger to the elbow was generally the measurement there. Back before that, back over in the Old Testament times, Solomon's days, it would have been more along the lines of 22 inches. But nonetheless, it's a rather large span. And so Jesus asked the question, if you can simply think about your life, and you can think about your statue, your height, this is only one perspective of it, can you make yourself any taller? Now, we understand that, no, you can, and if you could, I don't know you could gain a cubit out of it anyway. But I'll tell you about the word, the word statue here is oftentimes translated perhaps a little better. The American Standard chooses to do this, and it has more to do with the span of life. So what Jesus actually says here in that instance, then, the word statue meaning a span of life, Jesus said, for which of you taking thought, anxious worry about your life can add to it? 18, 22 years. Folks, I had never met a time when worry added 18 minutes to anybody's life. I heard tell of a man, supposedly a true story, and I suppose it is. It's probably true all around this world. His father had died with cancer. His twin brother had died with cancer. His mother had died with cancer. So what do you think he expected to die of? So he worked, if you want to say it this way, he worked his proverbial fingers to the bones at his job, but all the time he had off his job, he spent his time going to doctors and having scans and having this and having that and blood drawn and tests run. And finally, one day, he made it to retirement. He retired out, and he knew then, if I can ever take care of myself, it'll be now. He dropped dead of a heart attack 45 minutes after walking off the job. You know what the doctor said? I believe he worried himself to death. What about fitness? Is it the case that God would prohibit us from spending time in a gym? That God would prohibit us from taking care of ourselves? Is he saying don't do that? No. He's saying do not do that to the extent that you again are more concerned with that physical body because you worrying about it, having anxiety over it, cannot make it any longer. So what are the causes of worry? Food, fashion, fitness, and look at the future. Verse 34. He says there very clearly, Take no thought, therefore, for the morrow. For tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself, and sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, what in the world's wrong with that? What's wrong with thinking about tomorrow? What's wrong with taking thought about tomorrow? Well, there's really nothing. But how do we usually try to convince ourselves out of doing that? What would be good practical advice, even aside from biblical advice, and we'll talk more about this verse in a moment, what would be good for that? Well, we tell one another, well, worrying about tomorrow won't change it. Worrying about what happened on yesterday will not change it. And in all actuality, worrying about yesterday and tomorrow will only change our relationship with God. Because he said, take no thought. 
Now, you may be asking now, well, you, you say these few things, you go through these things very quickly, these are causes of our worry, but what's the problem? Well, aside from the fact that we just simply disregard God's command when we worry, that's the problem. There are several of them. Notice with me the curses of worry. What I mean by that is I have to realize that worry within itself is a curse. Worry can be a curse. Consider with me the people of worry, for instance. Who is it that typically worries? Well, you say, well, it has to begin with you. What does worry do to the individual person? It will impair you. I found myself in life, and I'm guilty as anyone, of worrying about something, thinking about something, focusing on something, dwelling on something. You can use all the different words to describe it, and missing out on everything else. Unable to see what is before me, unable to see what is set beneath me and what I am to do. And typically that doesn't come with the big things anyway. You know the lion can go in and he can take hold of an animal or wildebeest or something and he can take it down and he can pull just about all the meat off the bones of that animal. But it's not until the ant shows up that the bones are picked clean. What I mean by that? The big worries in life don't necessarily destroy me. It is the smaller worries that cause me the problem. The ones that I continue to hang on to and I continue to add to and to add another and another. And finally, the cares of this world take me out. But not only can you see that in that it will, in that instance at least, impair you. I'll tell you something else about it. It will injure others. You say, well, my worries are my problem. I don't know when that's ever been the case for me. When I worry, when I'm concerned, what do I want to do? I want to go and I want to share that with someone else. You say, well, Jim, you would teach plainly and clearly, and the Bible would likewise, what Galatians chapter 1 says, that we ought to bear ye one another's burdens. And all that I'm trying to do is that. And that's true. The person on the other side ought to help us to bear our burden. We in turn ought to be willing to confess our faults, which can include sins and burdens, James 5.16. And those things have to coincide, but is there danger in it? Yes. You can reference back in your Bible, I suppose, back to Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. And you'll find out that those twelve spies had gone out. Of course, we all know the stories. Our children do. Two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back. Therefore, the other ten of them came back with an evil report. Caleb stilled the people. Said he told them, just calm down and listen. He said, we are well able to overcome this land. Now, that was a man of wisdom. That was a man appointed by God. We'll find that out later. But, right behind them, those ten men. Insignificant in number in comparison to the six and eight hundred thousand that may have came out of that land and were trying to go into the promised land. Insignificant. Ten men, the Bible says, then turned and said, that's not the way it really is. We are like grasshoppers before those people. Go to Numbers 14 and verse 1. And the Bible says, and all the people began to cry. Nay, the God lied by allowing the word all to be translated in our translations, or else he didn't. Friends, I have faith in God. His word comes through clear. Ten men. Their worries, their anxieties, their concerns, in turn, injure all of those people. But is that really a big deal? That I myself am impaired? 
Is it really a big deal that oftentimes others are injured by my worry? Not nearly as much as this insults God. Say what? You mean, preacher, this actually insults God when I worry? Look back. Verse 30. Wherefore, if God should clothe the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? Watch it. O ye of little faith. What does it say? What it says to God when I have anxiety, when I'm worried about these cares, this food, this fashion, the fitness, the future, when I'm all worried about those things, when I'm overcome with those things, what it says to God is, God, what you said in Romans 8, 28, that all things will work together for good for him that knows God, what you said is a lie, God. I don't have enough faith to believe that. And then we find ourselves praying to God, at least with a tone of voice, maybe not these words, but with our tone, we say, God, do you really know what's going on down here? Do you know how things are? Do you know the cares that we have? God, have you seen CNN lately? Have you seen the economy? Do you know the world in which I live? We make a mockery of God. And if you go a little bit farther than this and read the verse that follows it, he says, He, all ye of little faith, verse 31, Take therefore no thought, saying, What shall he eat? What shall he drink? Wherewithal shall he be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. You say, well, I remember in the Old Testament times, uh, there was a division between the Jew and the Gentile. And basically, if you were a Jew, you were a Jew. That was by blood kinship. If you were not a Jew, you were assumed to be a Gentile. The word translated here, Gentile, literally means heathen. What are you saying, God? The Son of God is sitting here and He says to you, you know, if you're worried about these things, you're no better than the world. We like to stand up sometimes, maybe not with any intent, but we do it in nonetheless. We stand up sometimes, we pull on our jackets, we hold our Bibles underneath our arms, and we say to ourselves, you know, we are the people of God, the world. They have a whole different life. They've missed it all. We step right out of the world on this point. Oh, ye of little faith. For after these things do the Gentiles seek. But that has to do with the people who worry. How that when I worry, one of the great curses of worry is that I in turn would impair myself. I would injure others. I would most definitely insult God. But what about the product of worry? What really comes from worry? Well, you consider it, you have to understand this really carries itself all the way back to verse 34. That worry will bear your blessings. God who rains down blessings, he said in the same context upon the just and the unjust. God who would provide for all men. The same God whom this text right here says, he knows these things. He knows what you have need of. That same very God, when he blesses you, those blessings are buried by worry. Read verse 34 again from a literal standpoint. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow, watch it, shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, to put this in a nutshell, this is basically what the language is trying to say to us. 
He says every day he's got problems. Every day we'll have concerns. Every day we'll have anxious worry. The word evil there can be translated just that. Difficulties, problems. Every day he's got it. And he says there's plenty for every day. There's plenty for today. There's plenty for tomorrow. There was plenty for yesterday. And there'll be plenty for the days and months after that if we should stand on this earth. And when I focus on that... When I focus on saying, well, I've got a lot of trouble today and I couldn't imagine what tomorrow's going to be like. Oh, let me get ready for it. My blessings are buried. But not only would it bury your blessings, I'll tell you something else about it. It would steal your strength. You see, the literal language in this verse gives us the idea that God has provided for us. And we know the whole of the context of the New Testament would prove that God would provide for us good things. He would provide for us those blessings. And we even find in 1 Corinthians that God would provide for us a way of escape. From what? From temptation, from sin. There's a way out. And so here's what happens. We hear a lot of people today talking about the ecological system, whatever that is. And they'll tell you that there's an ecological balance that's in this world. They'll tell you if you throw too many plastic bottles in the landfill, you just tip the scales. Or you turn your air conditioner a little bit, uh, too many degrees too low or too high in the winter, and you tip the scales. You've messed everything up. I don't know about that so much, but I'll tell you this. What God's saying here is I created you. In Psalm 100 and verse 3, we find that out. It is the God of heaven that created us, and He knows us. God knows what I can bear. Back to the verse we referenced a moment ago, there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. That's good to know. We're all dealing with the same things. But he goes on to tell us that God allows these temptations. He allows these things to come into our lives. Why? Because God knows what we can bear. The Scriptures actually tell us He will not tempt us above that which we are able. This may be hard to grasp, but the truth of the matter is this. God allows difficulties, allows troubles, allows evil, that's the word here in the text, problems into my life. Some would argue whether he would cause that. I don't know that on occasion he doesn't cause those things to wake me up. But he at least allows. But he allows us just enough. Believe it or not, he allows us just what we can bear. You know, I suppose every automaker that's ever existed, I know the Fords and the Chevrolets and the Toyotas and the Chryslers and Dodges, whatever, all of them, when they make a pickup truck, they have a practice that's been going on for a long, long time where they actually tell you the capacity of that truck. doesn't have anything to do with how much the vehicle weighs. They say, here's a half ton, here's a one ton, here's a ton and a half, here's a two ton, and they go on up in the industrial vehicles. Here's all these trucks. doesn't have anything to do with what it weighs. It has to do with what? It has to do with what that truck can bear. The load. Again, Psalm 100, verse 3, the God who creates knows what our load. He knows our capacity. And here's what happens. Let's make a mathematical equation out of this, even though that be my weakest subject. Let's suppose, theoretically, that God allows ten difficulties to come into my life today. 
Let's suppose, therefore, that God likewise, as a good and gracious God does and would, He would therefore allow ten solutions or blessings to come into my life today. You know what happens when I reach into tomorrow? And I say, well, you know, I got that big job interview tomorrow. I don't know how that's going to go. I just, uh, I dread it. And we pull one back. We've got 11 problems and 10 solutions. You know what happens when I make it to the end of the day? And I say, well, I got by today, but boy, I blew yesterday. I've got to go back and relook at that. I've got to reconsider what I did over here. We reach into yesterday and we grab a problem. And now we have 12 and God only gave 10 solutions. And it's no reason, friends. To me, it's no reason why we, like that truck frame, find ourselves sometimes with a spring squat to the ground and having to call a tow truck to pull us out. We're buried. And our strength has been taken away. In Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 25, the Bible says, As your days are, so shall your strength be. What do you mean, Moses? I mean God gives you the strength for today. He doesn't give you strength for tomorrow. No more than He should provide for us food or fashion or fitness or the future. You know, you go back into the Old Testament times. We mentioned this, I think, on several weeks ago, how that it was that those Israelites were given manna by God every morning. What did they do? They were able to go out. They were able to gather manna every morning. But they were only able to gather, at least for those first six days, they were only able to gather one day's provision. If they gathered any more than that, it spoiled right then and they went hungry all day. It wasn't until the sixth day God allowed them to gather only then a double portion enough for today and the Sabbath, and then they would maintain themselves. Why do I say that? Because when I gather troubles, don't expect God to give me an abundance of solutions. Or when I gather into my barns these things, these worries, don't expect God, therefore, to continue to bless me in that. But not only can you think about this and see that it will oftentimes bear your blessings, it will in turn steal your strength. There's something that we really have to consider, at least I do. Sometimes it produces problems. I mentioned a man a moment ago dropped dead of a heart attack because of his worry. Obviously, that would be one. I remember the words of Job. In Job chapter 3, I believe it is, Looks like verse 25. Job actually spoke there and he said, The care that I had today has now come upon me. You translate that into a parallel with this. He said, The worry that I had, what was just bothering me, just grating on me all the day long, that certain thing, that's now what's come to happen. You ever gotten behind anyone driving down the street? This happens to me fairly often. I'm guilty of it sometimes. You're so worried the red light's going to change, you slow down at every green. And before you know it, the red lights start to change, don't they? Because of the worry. It will produce problems. You say, well, that's all well and good. But we know the causes of the worry. We know it can be a curse. It will both curse the people. It will produce, therefore, that curse at least. But how do we cure it? Remember the cure. Go back up to verse 31. 
Reading that again and putting it together at least, you'll find, he says, Therefore take no thought for saying what you shall eat, what you shall drink, wherewithal shall you be clothed. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Now we focused on that phrase, but watch it. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. How do you cure worry? Consider the Father factor. Consider who your father is. I'm sure this could happen, but rarely does it. Let's suppose for a moment we've got a family, and the families were more like this in days gone by than they are now. But we've got a family, we've got a loving mother, a loving father. They're out hitting the grind every day. They're doing the best they can to provide for their family. But the economy maybe is not what it needs to be, so they're not making ends meet as they would hope. And let's suppose they have 12 children, a dozen right there. Those stepping stones go up. Do you think those smaller ones especially come and sit down at the table at night as they're about to eat and they say, Daddy, you know, I appreciate this meal that you paid for and Mama cooked, but do you plan to do that tomorrow or not? I'm really worried. I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight, Daddy, because I'm not so sure if I'll have these things tomorrow. No, why? Because you know who your father is. If the Father that I have in heaven be God Almighty as He ought to be, again, verse 24, no man can serve two masters. He's got to love one, hate the other, hold to the one, despise the other. You can't serve both. If I serve God and God alone, my Father in heaven provides. You think for a moment that Christ would prohibit us from giving anxiety, anxious worry to these things, and then turn around and laugh and say, boy, I showed them. They won't have any of this. No. But not only can you note in the text here what I'm calling the father factor, you can also notice the focus factor. Really, all that we talked about last week comes down to this verse, verse 33, but seek ye first. What? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And watch this now. Uh, we take it out of context. I think there are applications that go back to the beginning of this sermon in chapter 5. But the immediate context, take no thought, he says. And then he says, the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things. What things, Lord? Food, fashion, fitness. In the future shall be added unto you. Then somebody thinks to themselves, or maybe they say, it don't work. It does not work. You cannot just simply think about God and focus your attention on God and expect these things. Again, a man has to work or he need not eat. There's no doubt about that. Again, a man has to reap or he's not going to sow. We know about that. We even know that in Proverbs 6 and verse 6, the ant is put way above the sluggard. Why? In the eyes of God because he goes out and he searches for food. and He brings that back and he stores it up and prepares for a day when there will be none. It won't work. I have one question for that person. I've asked myself that same one. Have you tried it? More times than not, in my life at least, when I've said that, I hadn't tried it. I hadn't saw God first. What did I say? 
God, I need food. I need clothing. I need all these things. And if you'll allow me to have it, God, I would certainly be blessed. The boss man says, I hear you're having a tough time. I've got a few hours on Sunday you can work. If you'll be here at 10 o'clock, I'll be happy to work you till about 2. And I say, thank you, God. God didn't do that. I cannot see a thing in the world that God would providentially prohibit a member of His kingdom from seeking Him first. Not one place. So what do we have? We have the father factor. We have the focus factor. And then, as we mentioned a moment ago, we really have the future factor. Because God gives blessings. For everything that would cause me anxious worry, for everything that will lay upon me any level of anxiety, God provides for that. I found a quote the other day. I used in one of our exhort mails when I was going through, and it was this. Worry is the interest we pay on borrowed trouble. That's all that it is. It's the interest I pay on borrowed trouble. How do I see the future? In my future, I see God. Not the cares of this world. Not the things that would choke me out. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. His disciples had come back after the parable of the sower. The four types of soil had been spoken of. Jesus even spoke of one that had been choked out by the thorns. They come back and said, Jesus, what do you really mean by this? Can you explain the parable unto us? Jesus says, the one that's been choked out by the thorns, it was choked out by the cares of this world. Same Greek word, anxious worry. And in that context, it didn't take a man away from things. It took a man away from God. One who had served him. One who had grown up, who had sprouted in amongst him. But one who is now being choked out by the world. You're here this morning and you're not a child of God. You may be saying to yourself, I don't have these worries. I'm not concerned with those four things you keep saying. You may not be, but I pray to God you're concerned about your soul. Because except we have faith. And I mean by that that we look to the God of heaven and we say, God, I know you'll provide all those things. And I know it because above all of that, you'll provide for me a home in heaven. That faith carries itself to knowing that God will care for us both on this side of eternity and yes, on yonder side. That faith carries itself on to a point where I would be willing to repent of my sins. I suppose these things, these people to whom Jesus spoke, they're scratching their head. Maybe some of them already. I don't know if they had. Maybe some of them already had gotten up and left the Sermon on the Mount because they had somewhere else they needed to be. Maybe a man actually got up and went home to check his barns. I don't know. But I can know this. Unless I'm willing to turn from the world and turn toward God, I cannot be saved. To be willing to confess His name. The God of heaven, the Lord, His Son, Christ, who would come into this world knowing that He is the Father. He said, except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Knowing that He is God, being baptized for the remission of sins, so that I can be even brought into a position where God provides just these things, I must seek first. 
unless you're maintaining it by remaining faithful. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, or you are, and you find yourself from time to time, as so many do, this one right here has, trying to provide all these things for self while God sat on the side, cannot do it. Won't you come home today while together we stand and as we sing?